take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. You, you can find that if you're using one of the red pew Bibles on page 150. Uh, this morning we're going to be wrapping up chapter 5 starting verse 22 and then reading through verse 33. Now I normally will work through a series regardless of whatever is coming. Um, but actually, this is going to wrap up our time this fall in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, looking forward, looking at chapter 6, there is just no way where you're going to make it through chapter 6 by the end of the year, and I want to give that its due diligence. So this is going to wrap up the series, our series through Deuteronomy for this year. Uh, next week, we're going to start, it's not a topical series, but we're going to be looking uh, at a theme of the promise of the offspring as we have seen through. So we're going to actually be dropping into a couple different places in the biblical canon leading up to Christmas Day, which we will be having church as regular Christmas Day, and we'll be arriving at the birth text on Christmas Day. So I'm excited about starting that new series with you. Um, this morning we're going to be wrapping up uh, our series, what the time we're spending in Deuteronomy uh, for this fall. And actually, I think that our text actually flows really nicely into that transition. So I'm excited to get into, the, you, into that with you this morning, uh, starting looking at um, Deuteronomy 5 and wrapping that up. Now, uh, I realized earlier this week that when it comes to Christmas, Ellie and I really are fighting an uphill battle. Uh, we had to, we decided that we were going to decorate our house on Monday, so I had gone down into the basement to grab our tree and all the totes that are filled to the brim with Christmas cheer. Titus was there with me. He was very excited about this. So, And as we were pulling everything out, Titus found this little tyke's manger seam, and he immediately seized that and started opening it up. And as he pulled out the pieces, I thought to myself, hey, this, this is a prime moment for me as a dad to start talking about what Christmas is, to remind him what this is about. So I just casually held up that little plastic figure of baby Jesus and I said, Titus, who is this? A baby. Yes, it is. But what baby? Uh, oh, I, my heart kind of he hesitated and I, my heart kind of sunk a little bit and I said, it's Jesus! It's the whole reason we are celebrating Christmas. Christmas is about when we celebrate Jesus' birth. And he kind of, okay, and then moved on. And I thought, my goodness, I, this was a learning moment for me. Because I realized that it's not going to come by osmosis. I'm going to have to really be intentional to teach him what this is about and to teach Rebecca about that as she gets older as well. It's just so easy to get wrapped up in the celebration of Christmas that we lose sight of what we're actually celebrating and the world is stacked against us because it is constantly pushing its own thing. The fact is that all the traditions, all the sights, the smells, the food, the colors, the presents, the stockings, the lights, the trees, and everything else lose their significant if it wasn't their significance if it wasn't for this. The fact that the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us, coming as a humble baby to fulfill all righteousness with his life. 
to atone for the sins of his people through his death, to rise in victory over the grave, to rule and reign as the king over all, and then to, me- to mediate a new and better covenant of grace for you and for me. That is why Christmas matters. That is why I think Christmas is really worth celebrating and enjoying to the best of our ability. The promised offspring has arrived, and with him light and life has come to us. We have every reason to celebrate. The glory of Christmas is the glory of Christ. Knowing how easy it is to get distracted by all the hustle and bustle of the season, I think it's important for us to be really intentional this year to remind ourselves of what the season is really about. And it just so happens that our passage this morning actually helps us to appreciate the arrival of Christ by turning our attention to the need that we have of a mediator, someone who is able to make God known to us and who is is able to enable us to have a right heart to respond to God so that we earnestly seek to honor and love and obey him. So let's begin first by reading our passage. If you would please stand with me as I read out of respect for God's word, looking at Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting at verse 22 and reading through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If, If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you... Stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. 
you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, this is a fascinating passage. Functionally, it wraps up Moses' introduction to the law, and it prepares us really to receive the teaching of the law, which is what starts in chapter 6. But more than that, I find that this passage is one of those rich gems which is aimed to teach us something about the heart of God for his people. God has a heart for his people, and this passage teaches us what God's priorities to bless his people are. From this passage, we learn that God delights, he loves to see a right heart in his people. He delights in a heart that fears him, and loves him, and obeys him. He loves to see his beloved responding in a right way to him, to see them walking in the path of life, bearing the fruit of faith in their lives. God loves that. The problem is that because of sin, the heart of man is not naturally inclined to love God in that way. In fact, it cannot. It is dead. And so without God intervening, nothing will change. And that is what makes this passage so fascinating because it helps us to understand the steps that God has taken to save us from our sin and from its influence by introducing us to the necessity of a mediator, someone who is able to stand between God and man. And so we are pointed in this passage through the shadow of Moses to the glory of Jesus, whose birth is what we're celebrating at Christmas. So the main idea that I want you to take away from this passage simply is this. God loves a heart of obedience. God loves a heart of obedience. And in this passage, we see that God has done three things in particular to effect this within his people, to give us that right heart of obedience and love for him. And those are going to be our three points this morning. We see that God first has made his glory known. He has made his glory known. Second, we see that he has appointed a mediator. He has actually appointed that mediator that we need. And third, we see that God has established a path of obedience. He has established a path. So we want to begin by looking at the weight of God's Glory. Now, people have been talking this week uh, a lot about the eruption of Mauna Loa, the world's largest active volcano. It's in Hawaii. Uh, it has made the news because this is actually the first eruption that has happened since 1984, almost 40 years. And when you look at the footage of this eruption, it's really hard to get a good grasp of the scale of things. But it's pretty obvious, as I've been looking at, watching some of the video and seeing some of the pictures, uh, it's obvious to me that uh, that is not a place that I would like to be standing right now. Uh, when you're watching molten rock get thrown who knows how high up into the air, I don't want to be underneath that. Uh, it's one of those things that you can appreciate and marvel at from a distance. But if you fail to respect it, if you fail to fear it, 
you are going to wind up a little more than crispy. What Israel experienced at the foot of Mount Sinai was far more glorious and far more dangerous than any volcanic eruption. There at Horeb, they came face to face with the glory of the Lord. Uh, The fire that blazed on that mountain was not the glow of molten rock, but the radiance of the God who spoke the universe into motion, whose breath kindled the light of the sun and the stars, who spoke to the ocean and said, This far you shall come and no further who formed and fashioned every living thing in his wisdom and understanding for his pleasure. On that day, when God met with Israel, he made them witnesses of his holiness. He spoke to them directly, not by proxy, but he spoke to them with his own voice. And they became witnesses of the weight of, of his glory on that day. Witnesses of the words which he had spoken to them, which were intended to guide them in the path of life. No no one had ever seen or heard of anything like this before. No people, no nation had ever claimed to be gathered together to meet with their God. No people expected to hear the voice of a God, especially not the Lord, the living God, and live. And yet, that's exactly what happened on this day. In doing this, God showed that He truly is the one true living God. He showed that He truly is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, even as the blaze of His holiness shone in the fire that was on that mountain. We see that He covered Himself in this cloud, in this gloom and darkness, so that the people would not be consumed by it. And he spoke his law to them from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, so that no doubt could come into the minds of the people that the Lord, he truly is God. This, this was a nation-defining event in Israel's history. We've spent a lot of time in our study on the book of Deuteronomy specifically looking at this instance. And there's a reason for that. This is a key chapter, not only in Israel's history, but really, it's a key chapter in the story of redemption. It shows us that God is committed to the glory of His holiness and that He is committed to the relationship He has with His people. The people didn't have to imagine what God was like. They got to see the reality of who He is with their own eyes. What's more, they had heard Him speak. They had heard Him tell them His law. They had heard Him tell them how to live in a right relationship with Him and with each other. In Moses' recap of all this, in verse 22, he reminds the nation of what they, though they were children, had experienced collectively along with their parents. He also recorded, uh, he also includes that after God spoke these words to the people, that he recorded those commands which he had spoken to them by writing them on the two tablets of stone and giving them to Moses. God had revealed himself to his people with this display on the mountain, but more than that, we see that he revealed himself in his word, making clear to them how they were to live before him as his holy people. Now, 
I've never experienced anything like that. Can you, can you imagine what it must have been to have been an Israelite there at the foot of that mountain on that day? I, I mean, to see the cloud, to see that thick darkness up on the mountain, to hear the voice of God speak to you out of the fire of His presence, you would never forget that. There, there, are mo- there are moments in our lives when we'll say, I will remember that to the day I die. You would remember this. This would be unbelievable. You would never forget it. And really, that's the whole point. God gave Israel a real, tangible taste of His holiness. And He gave them His word so that their lives would never be the same again. He set them apart. And as He did, He set them on a path of life. Now, as amazing as this encounter with God at Horeb was, it was evidently a very fearful thing to experience as well. In verse 23, Moses recounts how as soon as the people heard God speak to them out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain burned with fire, they came near to Moses, the heads of the tribes and their leaders, and they said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. But then, more than that, it said, This day we have seen God speak with a man, and man still live. Uh, The people were shocked by what they had encountered. More than that, uh, they were shocked that they were still alive. Their unworthiness to stand before a holy God and the depth of God's mercy had been stamped on their souls. They were afraid that if this continued on, they were all going to die. And so in verse 25, they say to Moses, Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we heard the voice of the Lord our God any more, We shall die, for who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? So go near and and hear all the Lord our God will say, and then speak to us all the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear it and do it. Now, the Hebrew word kadosh, which translates to glory in English, communicates this idea of, of heaviness, of weightiness, the weight of God's glory, which the people of Israel experienced at Sinai, was so great, they were afraid they were going to be crushed by it. It was in that moment that they understood the weight of the holiness and the majesty of God, and they understood how far short they fell of that glory. So when they were all exposed to the righteousness of God on the mountain and the law, they began to feel the weight of their own sin and, they, and they, they felt that fear, I think, that drove Adam and Eve to go and hide themselves in the garden when they heard the Lord walking in the garden after they had sinned and disobeyed. They got a real good look that day of the dark chasm that separated them between, because of sin between them and God. They saw what light does to shadow And in that moment of clarity and self-awareness, they got a grasp of how fragile they really are. How deserving they were to have God's judgment fall on them, even as it had fallen on Pharaoh in Egypt. God is a God to be feared. He is not to be trifled with. His holiness is not a joking matter. A twig has a better chance in a pool of lava than a sinner has in the presence of a holy God. And yet God spared Israel 
though they were all sinners. He, he spared them so that they weren't consumed. Not because he made an exception, not because he decided he wouldn't punish sin that day, but because he is merciful and he had provided a way. God spared Israel because he set them apart. He had set his love on them and chosen to redeem them. While light has no fellowship with darkness, God had chosen to rescue a people for himself out of darkness, to reclaim what had been lost, to redeem what Adam had transgressed. He let Israel get a glimpse of his holiness so that they could see this for themselves, so that they could understand what it meant to receive mercy from a holy God, so that they would then live with a right reverence for Him and a love for Him that flowed out of the love He had poured out on them. God was laying a foundation of love and obedience in the lives of his people. Even while he had set them apart to be his special people, we see he was causing them to understand that in order for them to have a right relationship with him, they were going to need to rely on someone else, on a mediator who could go between them and God and not be consumed, who could go before God and bring them these words of life. And so we come to our second point this morning to see that in God's work to establish a heart of obedience in his people, he has appointed a mediator. True obedience to God starts by understanding the reality and the gravity of who he is. I think that's the pattern that we see in our text this morning. Loving God starts with knowing God. You cannot love what you do not know. That is what makes Israel's experience on the mountain so important. God made himself known to his people there. He established them as his holy people. And then in doing so, he also exposed to them the reality that in order for this relationship to work, there was going to need to be a mediator, someone who could go between them. Now you and I might expect that God would have been displeased with his people when they came to Moses and they said, uh, please, don't let the Lord talk to us anymore. Uh, we are going to die if he does that. Uh, you might expect that God would be uh, upset at his people. After all, I mean, God's people should want to be with God, right? That's what we want. When you say, I want to go to heaven, you're saying, I want to go be in the presence of this God. Directly. No, no darkness. Directly. Okay? That's a big thing. And the Israelites are saying, Moses, if he keeps talking, we're going to die. This fire is not going to be on the mountain anymore. It's going to be on the slopes. And we're going to be gone. But as we look at verse 28, Moses tells us that the Lord actually confirmed what the people said to him that day. And he even commends them. And he says, I have heard the words of the people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. Golden moment in Israel's history, okay? There's not many moments where Israel responds in the right way. This is one of them. And then God says this, and this has got to be the beating heart of this passage. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep my commandments that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. Go to them. Return Tell them to return to their tents. But you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandments and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land I am giving them to possess. 
So as the people came face to face with the reality of God's holiness and the reality of their sin, they recognized they needed someone to represent them before God. Someone who could then come to them and make God's instructions to them, His Word, known. Their experience had by God's own evaluation, the right effect on their hearts, even though it didn't last very long. Still, there are two things I really want to bring to your attention here. That is, first, what we learn about God's desire for His people, and second, what God has appointed, His appointed solution to the problem. In studying this passage, I have really just come to appreciate verse 29 for the way it just gives us a view into God's heart for His people. I mean, listen to the passion that God has as he speaks to Moses. Oh, that this people would have such a heart as this always. God knew Israel's history already. He knew that they were going to turn away from him. He knew that even after they received the blessings of the land, they weren't always going to have this heart. As God looks at this, he saw hearts that feared him hearts that desired to keep his commandments, hearts that he was eager to bless. The fear of the Lord comes from a right view of God. It sees God in the glory of his excellence, and it responds not like a rebel, but as a son, reverently and obediently. The fear of the Lord protects us from breaking God's commands, but it also guides us in keeping them, and they are the path of life. God's commands are not those of a tyrant, but of a perfect king whose laws and rules are good. They are commands that are fulfilled by love, and they are designed to lead God's people in the way of life. As we've studied the Ten Commandments the past three weeks, we have seen that God, God's ways promote truth, and they promote justice. His commands teach us how to live in a right relationship with Him and with each other. As we look at God's response to this, the people's request, we see that His heart was for them and that His desire was to see them flourish in the light of His glory. The fear that caused Israel to ask for a mediator wasn't due to God's commands being too burdensome. It was due to the fact that they had seen how far short they fell of God's perfection because of their own sin. God's solution to the problem was to give Israel a mediator. He told Moses to send the people back to their tents, but to remain with him so that Moses could receive the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules, which he was then to take and teach the people. The people had seen enough to know that whatever Moses brought to them wasn't his own opinions or his own preferences, but the very commands of God himself. They could trust that what he said was true. And so it happened that Moses brought the law to the people to teach them how to walk before the Lord as his holy people, which is what the whole book of Deuteronomy is about. That's what he's doing here. But as we think about this particular situation, what it says, we can see that Israel was truly affected in a good way by their experience with God. Yes, they were afraid, but they were afraid in the right way. As God spoke the Ten Commandments to them, they received that. Moses served faithfully 
bringing the rest of God's commands to the people, teaching them, leading them, and serving them. But there was a day that his service ended. Ultimately, that service was temporary, and it was limited. You see, Moses may have brought the law to the people, but he was unable to actually make them obey it. Days later, and I mean days later, we are told that while Moses was on the mountain with the Lord receiving the law, the people reverted back to their old ways. They rebelled against God and they worshipped the golden calf. While they said that they were going to do everything that the Lord was set, had said to them, they proved that they had hard hearts and stiff necks. There's a reason that the Lord says longingly to Moses, Oh, that this people would always have a heart like this before me. There's a reason why God tells Moses, Yeah, it's actually a good idea for us to have a mediator here because they are right. As the story of redemption continues, we see that God's plan didn't end with Moses. God's plan was to give us another mediator and a new covenant, one who could not only make God known to us, but one who could also redeem his people from their sins, who could actually give them that new heart that was eager to obey. God's yearning after the heart of his people took on flesh when the word of God, God's own son, took on a human nature and was born into this world as a little baby. Whereas the law can make God's standard of righteousness known to us, Jesus came into the world to make us righteous. Deuteronomy 5 may not be what we think of as a Christmas passage, but boy, does it point us forward to Christ. Because it reminds us that we cannot meet God's standard of his holiness in our own efforts. We are totally reliant on Jesus. And he and he alone is able to serve as that better mediator because he and he alone is both fully God and fully man. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Everything that happened on Mount Sinai was leading to this. God knew that for all their words, Israel was going to fail to keep this covenant. When he appointed Moses to serve, he knew that they were going to sin. He knew that Moses was going to sin too. He also knew that he had something better in mind, something better that was coming, a better covenant and a better mediator. As the author of Hebrews explains, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire in darkness and gloom in a tempest in the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Does that sound familiar? He's talking about this right here. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That was the plan that God was unfolding. 
a plan to exalt Jesus as the solution for our sins. A, a plan to make him the mediator of a divine grace that is able to atone for sin and to make us new, to give us eternal life and a new heart with a new nature that wants and wills to love and obey him. It's through Jesus that we receive a heart that, while it reveres God, is also eager to be in the presence of God because it no longer fears judgment because judgment fell on Christ. That is the power of Jesus' work as a mediator of the new covenant that which we are in if we've trusted him by faith. The world received the best gift ever on that first Christmas. It received a Savior who is God with us, who came to be this mediator so that our salvation does not rest on our own efforts, but on the grace which we receive through faith in Him. Now, because God treasures a heart of obedience, we see from this passage two things, that He has revealed Himself and He has exposed our need for a Savior. The good news of the Gospel is that He has provided that Savior. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be that Savior. And the result is that we have an atoning sacrifice that removes our sin from us, but also who has set a path of obedience before us and given us a new heart that seeks to walk on that path in a right relationship with Him. So that brings us to our third point, that God, in addition to making Himself known to us and appointing a mediator, has also laid before us the path of obedience. Now most of us are probably busy buying gifts for people right now that we're going to give to them at Christmas. Uh, if you're not, well, that's, that's up to you. Um, but have, I, I, in that being said, have you ever given someone a present, something that you put a lot of time and effort into, that you're like, they are going to love this, only to see that present on Christmas Day kind of get set aside and forgotten and never used? When, when you put real time and effort into picking out a gift, when you spend money on that gift... You want to see them get that joy, that get the joy. Like you get joy from seeing them enjoy and use that gift. An unappreciated, unused gift kind of robs the joy of giving the gift in the first place. God gave Israel, and He's given us a true gift. God showed Israel a special kind of love, having rescued them from their slavery in Egypt, having made His covenant with them, even giving them this mediator. God did not pick Israel because they deserved it. He didn't pick them because they had something to offer him. He picked them because it was his pleasure to do so. Because he had designed to bring salvation to the world through them. That's what we read in John 4. God took the people of Israel to be his people. And he set himself up to be their God. And along with that, he gave them this great gift. He gave them the law to show them the way they were to walk as his holy people. The law was God's gift to his people. Moses, in this, these, these final verses of chapter 5, reminds the people not to squander God's gift. Not to take this gift that God had given them and just to set it aside and to go do something else. He says, You shall be careful, therefore, to do 
as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall, not walk, you shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. When God called Moses up to the mountain, he didn't call him to just have a polite chat with him. He called him there to receive instruction which he was to pass on to the people, to teach them how to live in a right relationship with him and with each other. So before Moses goes into those instructions with the people, before he spends the last moments of his own life talking to them about the law, we find him charging them to devote themselves to this way of living, to use the gift that God had given them. And he gives them three commands. First he says, Be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. Notice the emphasis here that Moses puts on God's relationship with his people. That's the whole basis of these commands. Their obedience to the Lord was meant to flow out of their relationship with him. The same as our obedience to Christ flows out of the relationship that we have with him through faith. Second, Moses says, Do not turn aside either to the right hand or to the left. Which means, essentially, do not go your own way. Stay to the path that God has put you on. All too often, we are tempted to explain away God's commands, or we are tempted to replace His word and His standard with our own. Moses warns us not to do that. We must stick to the path. Third, Moses says, Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. You don't get to pick and choose which one of God's commands you're going to honor and which ones you will not. James tells us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So obedience, we see, is not contingent on convenience, whether or not it will put us in harm's way, or whether or not we feel like doing it today. No, this is the way. By faith, we must walk in it. The result of this, Moses tells the people, is that, first of all, they will live. These are words of life. These commandments were given by God to Israel to set a path of life and flourishing before them. God's commands continue to do that even now. Second, Moses says, it will go well with them. Now, this does not mean that God was never going to allow his people to go through tough times. But it does mean... That he, what, it, it does mean he, what, what he promises to do, that those who honor him and obey him will flourish. Indeed, Romans 8 assures us that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Third, Moses tells the people, they will live, if they do this, they will live long in the land that they are going over to possess. Now it's interesting, again, Moses leaves himself out of the blessing of the land. He's already explained why that happened, but even as he does, he reminds the people that the blessing of the land was God's gift to Israel. It was not contingent on Moses himself. God never, ever fails to keep his promises. So here Moses is reminding the people of the faithfulness of God's promises to motivate the people and to continue in their obedience. The key thing to notice about this final blessing is the way that Moses emphasizes that they will live long in the land. There's there's an echo here of Eden. There's an echo here of, of what happened when Adam and Eve lived and worked in sweet communion with God and with each other 
until they broke God's commands and were expelled, what happened? They were cursed to die. This blessing is the antithesis of that curse. God had told Adam and Eve, if you break this command, you will surely die. But Moses says to the people, if you keep these words, you will live long in the land where God is bringing you. The breaking of that curse has happened ultimately and on a deeper level in a greater way in Jesus Christ who is not only the mediator of a new and better covenant but who is also a new and better Adam whose faithfulness even to death on a cross has resulted in the blessing of eternal life which we now receive through faith in him. The law and the commandments were a gift given by God to teach his people how to walk in the path of life with him. And while the law couldn't make anyone righteous, it did serve as the standard of God's righteousness to set his people on a path to obey him. And as we look at this, we can see very clearly how this moment is pointing us to Jesus, who is the fulfiller of the law and the hope of all the saints. The path of life, which God requires that we have, that we have, sorry, the path of life that God requires is that we have a right understanding of who he is and his holiness. It also requires that we see ourselves and who we are in light of our, who we are in our sin in light of who God is. Or else we will most certainly try to rest in our own power and in our own efforts. God knows that we are unable to cross that great divide that our sin has put between us and him. He knows that even if that divide were something that we could cross in our own efforts, we would not because we are born into this world dead in sin. And so God has appointed a Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That is what I'm excited to unpack with you as we, and as we make our way through this month to Christmas. And that is what I'm excited to celebrate with you as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, as we celebrate the way that Jesus is a mediator of a new and better covenant through his own blood. Praise be to God for our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we come to the end of a leg in our journey through the book of Deuteronomy. And Father, I think we have discovered just how rich this book is. And we want to thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for these instructions. Thank you for the way that you care for your people enough that you would make yourself known to them and and put before them this path of life. And Father, even as the law exposes us, exposes our sin, exposes how far, far, far short we fall of your standard, We also rejoice in this, that you have sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior, to mediate a new and better covenant that assures us that all who trust in him will have eternal life. Father, that is a great, that is the greatest gift we could hope to have. It is a a gift that is greater than anything we could ever hope to have. We know what we deserve, and yet you have shown us mercy and grace and so father this 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 month as we as we celebrate the birth of jesus i pray that 
that celebration wouldn't fall flat on our souls, but they would only fan the flames of our affection for Jesus all the more. And that as you do that through your spirit, I pray, Father, that that fire would spread to others, that they would come to know him as their Savior as well, and they would get to rejoice in the glory of our King. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.